It's my great pleasure to be sitting down to speak with Stefan Kinsella, who is an attorney and libertarian author, who's kindly taken the time to have a conversation with me about libertarianism, property rights, and all that good stuff. I'm a Stefan Kinsella. I'm a patent attorney by trade here in Texas, Houston, Texas. And I've been a libertarian in Austrian school um, and anarcho-capitalist or anarcho-libertarian writer and uh, for a long time, like 25 years or so or more. Um, and I write a lot on rights theory, law and economics, contracts, um, uh, legal theory in general, um, and the intersection between that and libertarian theory and intellectual property too, which is one of my specialties because of my my legal practice. And also, so I've written a lot about that um, from a libertarian and Austrian point of view as well. Okay, great. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's a lot of labels thrown in there, um, just for people that are listening. Um, I mean, perhaps we'll define libertarianism. Um, different people in the kind of libertarian family identify under slightly different titles, like some call themselves anarcho-capitalists. Uh, right. I, I prefer, personally, I call myself a voluntarist, because um, right. I like the explicitness of the voluntary emphasis. Um, mm-hmm. And I also like the economic neutrality as well where i'm just sort of saying it's just about whether actions are voluntary you can have a commune if you like and 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 as long as as everyone involved is 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 willing participants and and property rights respected so um probably a good good way to sort of start off is to define what libertarianism is and what it means to you um just to give my own sort of 10 cents on it i think it certainly from a voluntarist point of view it's about the concept of self-ownership the idea that every individual has right over only their own self and then from that concept we have property rights uh, and the ability to obviously own property that we create or acquire through voluntary trade um and and yeah and everything kind of comes self-evident from that the non-aggression principle is obviously the moral principle that comes from the concept of self-ownership and that's kind of how i add it up in my own little head is how would you sort of conceptualize libertarianism to somebody who you were trying to introduce the concepts to yeah, I agree roughly with all of that substantively. So I think I'm mostly on the same page with voluntarists. Um, I do, actually don't like the term voluntarist for a particular reason, and that is because uh, over the years in defending various edge cases, I've had to clarify terms and be ca- be careful on the definitions we use because quite often there's uh, amb- ambiguity or multiple meanings for some terms, which leads to confusion when you get to the hard issues. So um, to me, the problem with voluntary is that um, a better word would be consensual. So I actually think a term consensualist would be better because if you coerce someone to do something with a threat of force, you could argue that what they did was voluntary. Uh, like in the U.S., we say that people pay their taxes voluntarily, and it's true. They, they volunteer to pay it because they want to avoid going to prison. So when you coerce someone, they're actually – choosing their actions. They're acting voluntarily, but it's not a free action because it's coerced. In other words, the consent that you give is not genuine consent. So that's a nitpicky kind of thing, um, but the reason I, I do that is because I think consent is the essence of like libertarian property rights, uh, but voluntary is ambiguous. Just like the word property, by the way, you use the word um, self-ownership, and that's another term. Self-ownership is also <laughs> confusing. So I use body ownership when I want to be precise because the word self is vague and ambiguous, and people have different conceptions of what the self is. Like, does it mean a soul? I mean, 
all property rights refer to scarce resources, including your body. So really what the libertarian view is that you're the owner of your body. Each person is the presumptive owner of his body. And if you want to call that self-ownership as shorthand, that's fine. Um, but it's important to keep that in mind. And what we own is not property, but we own scarce resources, and we have property rights in those resources. So the word property is really the relationship between the human actor and the scarce resource that he has an ownership or property right in. Um, most, most, of, most of the time, it's not important to be that pedantic, but sometimes it, it actually ma it makes a difference. Another one is the word state and government. People often use the word government as synonymous with the state. And ironically, it's the status to do that because they believe that certain functions of society can only be done by a state, like roads and education and healthcare uh, and defense and government. Government is the governing institutions of society, which basically is law, order, and protection and defense. We anarchist libertarians believe um, that this can be done privately. So we're really not against government. We're against the state. Um, it's just that the government function has been monopolized and co-opted by the state so that uh, we, we, we almost fall into the same trap, uh, the status trap of, a, of, a, of equating government functions with the state. So when libertarians say they're – when anarchist libertarians say that we're against the government, then we get criticized for opposing law and order because the, the, the statist thinks that you know, law and order can only come from government run by the state. So – in those edge cases, it's important sometimes to be pedantic. Libertarianism, I don't know if it's the best term, but it's the term I'm sticking with for now. Um, I view libertarianism as um, a, a political philosophy that includes both what I would call minarchist and anarchist libertarians. Um, even the word anarcho-capitalist is fraught with difficulty because it implies a certain preference for a certain type of economic order. So when I'm being precise, I try to say I'm an anarcho-libertarian. So I would say as an anarchist-libertarian or a voluntarist um, that the most consistent version of libertarianism would be an anarchist. And a minarchist is barely a libertarian by my lights, but I will include them out of, out of graciousness uh, in their umbrella. I don't think we should include – classical liberals. I think that we derive from classical liberals to some degree, but I don't think they're quite libertarians because they're really not for a quite radical minimal state. At least the minarchists are. So I would define libertarianism as I do in my article, what libertarianism is, as the political philosophy that opposes aggression in a consistent way. And aggression is a shorthand for um, the panoply of property rights that are compatible with self-ownership or ownership of your body. So I think you're right to say that um, the core right is ownership of your body, what most people call self-ownership, and the other rights flow from that, and those are the property rights we have in scarce resources. And when we say aggression, we mean a violation of property rights, even though aggression technically just refers to interpersonal violence, which, which concerns body ownership. But we extend that to any kind of trespass or use of someone's property without their consent. And that's why I think consent is the key term, not voluntary, if you want to be precise about it. So that's kind of my, my view. So I think that basically aggression is the use of someone's justly owned resource or what people call property, including their bodies without their consent, where we determine what is justly owned in accordance with a couple of basic principles. One is the self-ownership of your body, which means the 
every occupant of the body is the presumptive owner. And I say presumptive because you can lose that, right, when you commit aggression, but you're the presumptive owner. So slavery is basically um, um, impermissible, um, except as punishment for a crime. <laughs> um, and then for external resources, which are things that were previously unowned, we determine the owner, and thus we determine what aggression is by trespass of those property rights. We determine the ownership or the property rights in those scarce resources with First ownership or first first use, which is like locking and homesteading, and contractual title transfer, which is based upon consent. The owner consents to transfer the ownership to someone else. Uh, and then one third rule, which would be um, transfer of ownership as means of rectification for for an offense that you committed to someone else, like a tort. So so. The owner of a resource is either the person who got it first from the state of nature when it was unowned, or if you got it from a previous owner by contract, or if you got it from a previous owner because he had to pay you some recompense for some, for some wrong he did against you. So that's the core of libertarianism for me, and all of law and all of libertarian uh, political theory is just a spinning out of implications and applications and details of that basic, that basic philosophy. Yeah, I mean, just to touch quickly on the uh, issue of precise language, because I agree it is often necessary. I mean, I do think, I think regardless of what language you use, I think it is almost inescapable that there'll always need to be clarifications with regards to what you're talking about. You yes. know, I mean, there's there's no perfect term. Like, I, like I, I like voluntarism for the reasons you described the problem with libertarianism encompassing perhaps minarchists uh, as well as a more let's say consistent um adherents like anarchists and what have you um so that is obviously one, one reason why i go for voluntarism as but i can understand what you're saying about the consensual side because people can quibble and be pedantic and say well you know yeah. if someone puts a gun to your head you you can still take the bullet you've still got a a choice and, and you can still take a voluntary yeah. action after that and all the rest of it so yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying, but I do think that that ne that need for the clarification is always going to be there. It's like even the non-aggression principle. You know, some people say that you can have an aggressive tone, but that's not what correct. We're talking about correct when we talk about aggression. Correct. So, so yeah. yeah. So the pro the the problem is, um, it's it's the sort of disingenuous or the confused arguments by our opponents, and we're always on the rear guard. And you know, over the over the years, you'll hear the same mistaken or dishonest, I think, arguments quite often. Uh, so even for voluntarism, I'll hear people, you know, you know, how many times have we had to make this this stupid argument that, you know, we we understand that all laws are enforced by force. So they're ultimately enforced by a bullet, by the point of by the gun. Um, and and yet the velvet glove, the sort of soft idea of like a voluntary tax system. So I've had status many times say, well, you're you're not being forced to pay your taxes. Um, you pay them voluntarily because and they'll say well because i don't want to go to prison they'll say well but that's your choice so they will argue that way and you know they just don't want to think in these ways so um i, I don't criticize at all the voluntarists for their term i'm just saying that whatever you use like you say like you say the word aggression they will turn that into microaggression and they'll use in the in the conservatives and the liberals will say something like economic coercion right oh, by the way the word coercion is another one coerce just like libertarians <laughs> are not against violence or force uh, at least not all of us. Uh, some pacifists might be, but libertarianism per se is not against force or violence, just against the initiation of it, right? Yeah. Um, we're also not against coercion because coercion just means to 
threaten to do force violence to someone to compel them to do something. And in some cases, that's justified. So we're against aggressive coercion. We're against aggressive violence. We're against aggressive force. Uh, but anyway, um, by the yeah. way, Henry, Henry Hazlitt had a term which I also liked. It's called co-op cooperatism so it gets at the essence of consent or cooperation as the bedrock of society and i do like voluntary too the word libertarian is a little problematic because it's used in philosophy to to mean some kind of free will doctrine right yeah. um but but we already lost the word liberal to the status and i'm reluctant to give up on libertarian um and, you know, and like the Cato types tried to say market liberal for a while. They tried this, try to preserve the word liberal, but we've lost it. But I don't want to lose libertarian, even though it's been tainted over and over again by partly by the Libertarian Party in the US because they are not really hardcore libertarians by and large, especially in the recent years. Um, so, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a stubborn one. I don't want to give up on the word libertarian until I'm really forced to. Well, I mean, in a way, I don't think we have to give up on any of it. I mean, I, 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 I won't give up the word liberal. I'm, I will still consider myself a liberal person in that sense. But I think we just have to be aware that other people have other definitions Correct. and their definitions might even be the more popular and mainstream definition. Like I, I certainly wouldn't go around telling people I'm a liberal because I know that that would give them totally the wrong idea of who I am. But in, in, my in, mind, in Europe, maybe in Europe, maybe you could say you're a liberal and you could say maybe I'm an extreme liberal and they would get it. In the U.S., you'd have to say, I'm a liberal, but I'm like a classical liberal. So you have to always explain. But libertarian, you always have to say, well, I'm a libertarian, but I'm not a capital L libertarian party libertarian. I'm a philosophical libertarian. So then you're always explaining. But that's just part of the part of the way it goes, I guess. Well, and like you said, how the minichists managed to get in under the banner of libertarianism, even though I don't really like them under there at all, because the, like you, when you were describing libertarianism as being a consistent application yes. of the principles, well, minichists, by their definition, aren't consistent. Co correct. I, I call them mini status sometimes, and it really pisses them off. But, um, <laughs> they'll say, well, the word status doesn't mean that. I'm like, well, it's you believe in the state. And uh, it's just sometimes I'll sometimes I'm not as charitable. I'll say you're you're not a libertarian unless you're an anarchist. And then you get these annoying anarchists who always say I'm not a libertarian. I'm an anarchist. I'm like, God damn it, anarchists are just the most consistent libertarians. That's that's even too much pedantic quibbling for me. Uh, I'm an anarchist, uh, and I'm an anarchist libertarian. I think Gerard Casey titled his book that uh, after much thought. And um, uh, what is it called? Libertarian anarchy, or is it yeah, libertarian anarchy? Um, and um, um, but the minarchists, I what I the reason I include them is number one, they're the ones who founded the libertarian movement. You have Ayn Rand is basically the founder of the modern libertarian movement, I believe. Um, although you could argue she's a quasi anarchist without admitting it. Um, and Mises, and then Rothbard, of course, was an anarchist. So and Leonard Reed was not an anarchist. So some of the early libertarians that kind of founded it in the U.S. in the fifties were minarchists. So it's hard to ex exclude them, although I usually say they're just inconsistent libertarians, really. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a pretty fair title, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, funnily enough, actually, uh, the issue, um, like I say, the, I think the problem with language is I think even with goodwill, and as you mentioned, there's often a lot of times when you're dealing with people that are purposely trying to 
enter Correct. with bad faith. But even with goodwill, even with good faith, I think there's often the need for these clarifications. Correct. Um, and I'll give you an example. I've, I had a debate very, well, not that recently, about a year ago with David Friedman about the definition of anarcho-capitalism, because mm -hmm. he has a definition of anarcho-capitalism that would allow potentially, although he doesn't consider them likely, but would allow for within the definition things like drug laws and even Correct. slavery, because he basically says as long as it's decentralized, Correct. it's not um, status. Now, I disagree with that because in, in my mind and in my definitions of both anarchism and capitalism, certainly the property rights that underpins capitalism is being violated by both drug laws and slavery. Correct. But, but also, for me, the anarchist part's being quite more explicitly violated by the no rulers mandate that I know people have a very fluid definition of anarchism, but most would agree that it, it, it encompasses a no rulers mandate. And having someone tell you what you can put in your body or enslaving you is certainly in contradiction to such a principle. So, yeah, I do think we so the I mean, David Friedman is one of my biggest influences as, in, uh, in becoming a libertarian. I'm less of a fan of him now. Uh, because he's just not an Austrian, and he's not. I'm. I'm. I actually sometimes, without criticizing him in a in a, in, a, in an unfair way, I sometimes wonder if he's even a libertarian. Actually, um, he. I don't believe he believes in rights like his father didn't. Uh, Milton Friedman's argument for liberty was a horrible argument. The one he gave, which was the argument from um, from lack of knowledge and and tolerance, like. He basically said that we can't use the power of the state to force people to live the good life because we might be wrong about our conception of what the good life is. So because we're ignorant about the right way to live, we can't force other people to do it. Now, to me, that's a pretty thin, liberta uh, pretty barely libertarian idea because we libertarians don't rest our belief in liberty on that. We believe people have the right to do something that is objectively wrong as long as they don't violate rights. So we don't have to say, it's only because we don't know what the right the good life is. Even if you believe you know what the good life is, like if you're a Christian libertarian or if you're uh, an ascetic libertarian or whatever, or a vegetarian, you know, you don't think that you should have the right to force other people. I guess the implication of Friedman's argument, Milton Friedman, that is, is that if you did know, you could force. And the problem with that view is most people are not as humble as he is, most mainstream people. They think they do have a good idea of the right way to live. So if you give them permission to enforce what they do know for sure on other people, they go ahead and do it, and that's the problem with democracy, of course. And I assume his son Mil uh, David is similar. He doesn't believe in rights either. Uh, he's more of a Chicago-type utilitarian. Um, I do think that we have to be careful as libertarians not to become result-oriented and focus on liberty, which I believe is a word that's a stand-in. Uh, it's liberty is more uh, refers to the what consequences happen when you respect property rights, but the core of our belief system is in property rights and justice. Uh, so like one of my friends and colleagues, Frank Van Dunn, who's an anarchist libertarian of the European mold, which means he is much more prone to take a presumptive validity to the way the positive law in Europe has developed, uh, more of a legal positivist, uh, which I am not, um, way, I'm way more of a rationalist willing to tear down the existing legal systems if, if it doesn't comply with libertarianism. Uh, but anyway, so like, for example, he thinks that if there, if you have a conflict between property rights and freedom, as he calls it, you have to side with freedom. Now, I don't think any conflict is really, is really necessarily uh, something that's possible because I don't believe rights can conflict, but if we have to choose between freedom 
and property rights, I would take property rights side because freedom is just a consequence of respecting property rights and doing justice. So if you enter like private property area that doesn't permit you to do drugs, then that's not a restriction on your property rights. Whether yeah. if you don't like it, and some libertarians are more libertine and they're more results oriented. You see this in the COVID vaccine kind of thing. You know, they don't even like private employers insisting upon their workers um, getting vaccinated because they don't want to get vaccinated. So to them, it's about what they want, right? Whereas I'm more process oriented. Like as long as the rules are followed, and so so the, so the libertarians are uncomfortable saying they don't think employers have the right to force their employees to to get vaccinated, but they don't want to follow those rules. So they worm out of this by saying, well, the employers aren't really part, they aren't really private. They're parts of the state now because they're following state orders. So they're trying to cheat, right? They're trying to have their cake and eat it too. Um, anyway, that's a little bit of a tangent. <laughs> well, it's a good point though, because I mean, to be honest, if I, if I could uh, play devil's advocate and perhaps steel man their opposition a little bit, um, perhaps you could sort of say, look, they're part of a regulated system where there's already this coercive force that's preventing an alternative. Like, Correct. I mean, this doesn't justify, you know, one coercion doesn't justify another. No. And at Correct. the end of the day, in a truly free society, like you say, an employer would have the right to, in, to impose whatever requirements they want as a condition of their employment. However, in a free society, you could also have a regulated system obviously still going to have to be part of that consensual paradigm where within that regulated system, you could have those demands where employees aren't allowed to Im impose whatever, um, you know, like say you had a regulated market where employees aren't allowed to demand vaccines, but outside of that regulated market, they are allowed to, or in another regulated market, perhaps they are allowed to, because again, in a free yeah. society, you can have more than one regulated market. But I think one thing that gets lost on a lot of people, certainly from my point of view, is the idea that, and you touched on this earlier when you said about how people get confused between the government and state and, and what these actually mean, is there's a difference between having a ruling coercive entity that has this, wields this power to violate rights at its own whim and having a collective that's voluntary and consensual, like a regulated system that involves willing participants. Yeah, and there, there's no doubt that the libertarians are largely right that the actions of these private, so-called private – well, they are private companies. I don't call them so-called private. Um, they are heavily uh, distorted by state pressure, regulations, a preemptive desire to please the state so they don't get regulated further. That's true, but – that, but we already oppose that as anarchists, at least us anarchists do, right? Yeah. We oppose the system that's causing the problem, and the solution. And so, a lot of libertarians, like this Florida law that DeSantis, um, I don't know if it passed or if it was about to pass. I think it passed, where they're basically fining private employers who require employees to prove they were vaccinated. So they're in favor of that because it's part of this big battle against the, what the federal government is doing. But they're, that means they're willing to sacrifice property rights for the sake of a greater good, which is just what status and criminals do all the time. I'm not willing to do that. And so then they retreat to, well, they're really part of the state. Now it's like, okay, so then we, we live in a big communist gulag, the entire world. Uh, how, are we, how are we wealthy and surviving? Because I thought that according to the Austrians, if you have a centrally planned economy, uh, no production is possible. And if everyone's part of the state, then it's all just one big state, right? Yeah. So like th they're totally confused. The fact that we have prosperity and lots of wealth is in a sense proof that we don't have every private company part of the state because you wouldn't be able to have 
rational economic production without it, uh, without some meaningful degree of private. I mean, I think Mises one time said that, how, I don't know if I agree totally with this. Someone said, how can you tell if you live in an essentially free or an essentially totalitarian economy? Crush the anti-fascist mob. Sorry, that's my hopper ringtone. <laughs> um, um, and he said, if they have a stock market, a functioning stock market, and that gets back to his view about how you have to have private property respected in, in the economy so that free market prices can emerge and a stock market to trade the, the capital back and forth in accordance with rational free market prices. Um, so that's a good indicator of whether, whether they have a free market or not. And I think you know, another indication of that is whether we have wealth and prosperity, which we do, even though it's way less than it would be. So um, I, I understand the I understand these arguments, but I think that as libertarians, we have to beware of this desire. Look, I've suffered from it before in my youth as a grad student and you know, kind of joking around with friends like, oh, when we win, we're gonna have a libertarian Nuremberg war crimes tribunal and it's gonna be <laughs> Rothbard and Block and Hoppe or whoever at the top and we're gonna just pronounce sentences upon all the status in the world, which would be 7 billion people basically, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's funny. It's fun to think about, and you could, you could even argue that we have aggression in the world, and who's the cause of it? It's not just the jailers. It's just not, it's not just the policemen or the army. It's not just the legislators that we elect. It's the voters, and it's the juries, right? It's everyone. Um, so if you want to find a causal connection to the aggression that's happening, you can blame almost everyone except for the the hundred, the 10,000 or 100,000 anarcho, anarcho-libertarians anarcho in the world, okay? Everyone's guilty, so great. So if we if we somehow, if us 10,000 people somehow take over the other 7 billion or 8 billion, I guess we can impose, we can put everyone in concentration camps and punish them out of glee. I mean, it's just stupid. Hmm. The, the point of being a libertarian is not to seek vengeance upon people that that have ruined the human race or, or impeded the human race's progress for the last 10,000 years. The purpose of liberty is to promulgate and support principles that will allow us to live in harmony and peace and cooperation, cooperation and tolerance and voluntariness among each other, right? Not to look for vengeance all the time. If we were to get lucky enough to minimize or get rid of the state, we'd be so happy. I would just want to move on and let us start for, start from fresh, have a jubilee, forgive everyone. Okay, you put 10,000 people in jail, the bad guys, but we have to have people be free and move on. So this this kind of weird desire to, to find an excuse to say, okay, uh, Google and YouTube and uh, you, uh, you, Google and Facebook and Apple and uh, uh, Twitter and uh, private, you know, the airlines and private employers—they're all really part of the state. So that means that just just like it would be okay to use force against the, uh, you know, the army or the police, it's okay to use force against them. And I guess that means the force of law, which is what the Florida law is, right? So basically, it's this desire to put nominally or mostly private people or companies into this bucket which we call part of the state or it, part of the regime so that we can treat them like as if they have no rights so that all bets are off right so that you can you can assuage your libertarian conscience because you're in favor of ignoring private property rules like you have to be vaccinated to step foot on my premises to go in my drugstore you have to be vaccinated to be my employer it's okay to have a fake id card or fake vaccine card to lie because after all they're not really private 
I think that leads us down the wrong road. We should be for we should be optimistic and for good and for liberty and looking for a better way for the human human race, including people that are confused and quasi statist right now, not just for the ten thousand anarchist libertarians that are out there. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, you know, like you say, thoughts of vengeance can just be a distraction from what we're actually trying to achieve. And they don't, you know, it's, it's, I think it's kind of, I, I see comments like that. It's, it's kind of childish fantasy, a lot of it, really. I Correct. Think, I think people are just frustrated and they almost want to be like, oh, well, he'll have his day in Nuremberg, kind of, you know, shaking your fist, kind of. Yeah. Um, I think it's a bit of that, really. Um, I mean, again, I know, with a little bit of sympathy to, to, to the arguments, I can, I can sort of, like I said, I do agree with you that we can't just take this approach that everything is tainted because we live in, like I say, a status system. So therefore, there's no such thing. Because obviously, there are consensual um, interactions. There is valid property rights. There are people that, um, you know, that have consensual relationships, you know, not, not um, you know, just because you have a system that's set up uh, like you know like basically the existence of rape doesn't mean that all consensual sex is invalidated you know and it's a similar sort of thing when we look at people can point to plenty of injustices and plenty of instances where property rights are violated but that doesn't mean that these people that have acquired their property validly through property rights how you know like you know like say creation of trade and, and all the things that are in in in, in um within the paradigm of the non-aggression principle um then you know it's a different thing i think i think the problem is is like when for example say the supermarket in in my country say all of the supermarkets require that i have a vaccine passport to to shop in the supermarkets the problem and this is the valid point that the other side would make it doesn't validate the argument for coercion but it is a valid point in on of itself is the problem with that is because this is part of a mandated system overall and no no unregulated supermarket is allowed to offer an alternative to the non-vaccinated because we live in that coercive system that if the government decides that all the supermarkets can demand vaccine passports from everybody we don't have an alternative way to go you know like that's right. that that's that idea of having the problem of being in a coercive now i'm not saying that one justifies the other just like i mean i've heard a similar argument not quite the same but using a, a similar kind of argument from like conservatives who support drug laws when they say well certainly like in England, where there's like nationalized healthcare, they say, well, I'm forced to pay for your healthcare. So it is my business Correct. To put in your yep. body, you know, yep. and it's like, well, one coercion doesn't justify another. Correct. I'm not the one personally forcing you to pay for my healthcare. Correct. The arguments about whether the the illegal drugs are actually the ones that are really the more damaging, which is obviously its own conversation. But that kind of sidesteps the more important conversation of whether people have a right to tell people what they have can put in their, their own bodies, which obviously from a point of view of self-ownership is a non-starter on its well, own sure. look you could this is all 100 percent correct but all it means is the state has insidious and complicated and pervasive ways of, of controlling us and they do it partly through the private sector which is a type of fascism in a sense um yeah but <laughs> if there weren't a, if there wasn't a state or even a democracy they would there wouldn't be that central nexus of power that that could make any of this possible so that's the central problem um you know th this taint argument is dangerous because you this is used by status and people that are opposed to libertarian rights all the time because when we when we say well there are property rights and uh, you, you know we use the Lockean homesteading principle then they'll say something like well the, the the history of the world is 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 just mired in conquest so there are no 
original sin-free or taint-free property titles anywhere. And therefore, you don't really have a secure property right in your property. And therefore, if we take some of it from you as a property tax or as a wealth tax or whatever to support the poor, to redistribute or to punish you, then you really can't complain because you don't have, you don't have a property right in that anyway. So they're not really being good-hearted about this. They use this taint argument to undermine property rights. Um, instead, what we should say is we should say, listen – if you have any kind of sophisticated understanding of the way law works, um, you know, to prove my property – and by the way, Rothbard wrote about this um, in 74. Um, he kind of took back what he had written in 69 where he kind of implied that, yeah, no property rights are good because there's all this taint. He said, listen, when someone has a possession of something, right, which is kind of the common law rule, possession is nine-tenths of the law. right? When someone has possession, they're presumed to be the owner. Um, you know, unless they are the ones who stole it, unless unless they have unclean hands, because they're they're a bet they have a better title than anyone else, and theoretically you can trace it all the way back to Adam. But if you can't, if you can only trace it back to an act of conquest seven hundred years ago, okay, fine. If you can find the original people that had their property stolen, then they should get it back. But that's almost impossible because of the uh, the loss of records and evidence and all that for old old. Old acts. So all we can do is trace it forward and say who has the better claim now. Does the state have a better claim to it, or does a third party who comes and ousts me out of my house have a better claim to it? Oh, do I have a better claim to it because I bought it from a previous owner? Um, so the libertarian principles do not depend at all upon there being no uh, taint or corruption back in history. Yeah, I agree. And and their argument becomes self defeating in the way that you describe because yeah, even if they want to pick apart your right to it all they're doing is laying out an argument while no one else has a right to correct it as well which means they can't come in and say that correct. this has to happen or that has to happen it's yeah like this this is the ultimate problem is you know someone wants to take my property from me and if they ground it on the fact that there are no property rights well then how can they claim to want to have a property right in it it's like so and this is why i'm a fan of hoppa's argumentation ethics it sort of shows how anyone who makes a serious argument to undercut property rights always contradicts themselves because they have to presuppose that in the argument itself. You know, if, if you say, in essence, any argument to justify anything other than the libertarian ethic is, in, in essence, a slavery and a domination and a socialist argument. Like it's saying, I have a right to your stuff and you don't. I'm special. Basically, I own you. You don't own you. But I own myself because I have to own myself to own you. So it's a special rule. They believe in special rules, what we call particularizable rules, which are the opposite of universalizable or generalized rules, which is the is the requirement of any rule that could be possibly considered to be just. Um, so this is another reason why I'm a libertarian because I believe in fairness and consistency and logic, and you just simply cannot justify any. You can't justify a rule that says I, I'm entitled to hit you and you're not entitled to hit me because you're not arguing with persuasion and reason and cooperation. You're just using force, and if you want to use force, just become a criminal or act like a lion or a tiger or an animal, and you're going to be you're going to be treated like that. You know, you're going to be dealt with that way. But you can't use reason to justify socialism and violence because it's the opposite of reason and, and peaceful persuasion. Yeah, you can't reject morality and invoke it at the same time. You can't reject the concept of rights and then invoke the concept of rights. It's a little bit like when you hear people say property is theft. And again, that's self-defeating because if there's if property is theft because the very idea of owning something is immoral, then there's no way in which 
theft can even really exist. If I understand, I believe, and I, I haven't researched it in depth, but I think my original hostility to that that slogan, um, there could be something libertarian to that slogan, property theft, in the sense that um, you have these natural property rights that emerge from use of property, and they include a wide variety of property rights, like the use of land, but also people wandering around, having rights of rights of way or easements, passage rights. And when the state simply says, okay, the current guy who has a, a farm or a castle or a house on this tract can put up a wall basically, and we're going we're gonna to entrench his property rights in that way, the enclosure idea, right? Um, but it, it cuts off all the previous rights of hunters to roam and to forage and all this. It, in a way, is a theft because it's the state solidifying like one aspect of the, of the kind of complicated web of property rights that emerged naturally. Um, so you could argue that the enclosure movement or the state getting involved in legislatively or um, protecting only one part of the set of property rights would be a type of theft. I don't know if that's exactly what the criticism is getting at because I do think that there's sort of a hostility towards land rights in general as part of these original guys. You know, they, they're against monopoly, but they're also against land. Well, like even even the best guy on IP early on was Benjamin Tucker. He was sort of against monopolies for the same reason he was kind of hostile to property rights in land because they view it as a monopoly right partly well i mean i mean i do actually have a little bit of an issue with land ownership myself with regards to property rights i mean i mean the example you gave i would say that that's not an example of property being theft but an example of invalid property right. claims you know correct. so like so property itself is still valid but correct I suppose, and this is the way I conceptualise it, um, and this is how, and this is how it attaches to my issues with the land ownership thing as well. Is because for me, although things can get a bit complicated when you're applying it to all different aspects, it all comes simply back to self ownership, and that's where it all begins. That our right over ourselves, and that's where our right over mm -hmm. over property that we create or acquire voluntarily, um, you know, comes from that. Um, so, so my point of view is, is your right over yourself is absolute in the sense that you have the right to do anything you want except you don't have the right to violate others exact same right you know to do you know to, over their own selves so so my point is is like your freedom as we define it by self-ownership still has that restriction on it and that same restriction carries over to your property so just as i can do what i want with myself i can do what i want with my rightfully owned property but again the same restriction that i'm not violating other people still applies now correct in the example of the the problem with the enclosure movement and why that is immoral and why that's um, invalid under what or how I conceptualize property rights is because what you have here is like it's like in the example you gave of building walls around somebody else's property you can say yes. well I've not invaded their property but right. I've, I've imprisoned them yeah. or um, yeah, yeah or you know or you block their drive so they can't get out of their house or, or whatever it is you know all they don't have to own all of these aspects for you to be violating them by you know you know it's like i don't own the sun or none of us own the sun but if some i know it's a bit comical yeah, fantasiful but like out of the simpsons if you ever watched that when mr burns blocked out the sun with his big sun blocker he was aggressing against everybody now you can yeah. be pedantic and say he didn't touch anybody else's property and nobody owns the sun so whatever he yeah. was doing with it. but the fact of the matter is is he's still violating you know that's still a clear and obvious act of aggression even though you're not touching well i i think that you could you could sit down and study it you could say that look Basically, by living on the earth 
in a certain way. You've homesteaded a certain type of easement, which is like a uh, a type of property right in in basically the view between you and the sun, something like that. So someone physically blocking it is invading. I mean, all rights are property rights. So anything that's an act of aggression is, in a sense, a violation of some property right. You just have to identify what it is. Um, but it, the details don't really matter. I think you're correct. Uh, by the way, this is a Walter Block type discussion. He loves talking about blocking the sun and these kinds of things. But, um, <laughs> I think it's because a lot of things exist on like a continuum and yes. there's that, you know, like we can get to, you know, like when you said that it's important to be precise about language, but there is the possibility of getting so pedantic yes. that we just kind of lose all definition everywhere, you know? And, and, and there's a, a lot of libertarians have a tendency towards this type, type of rationalism or this kind of OCD obsession with neatness. Like, a lot of them are they're not that sophisticated in law so they think law is what's written down you know they believe in legal positivism almost um and so i've heard arguments like um like i'm against intellectual property but there are some there are a couple of bad arguments against intellectual property one of them is this like if i buy so one argument for ip is that uh, there's a contract like you know if you buy a book there's a contract that which prevents you from using it a certain way which is flawed in many ways right because there's not a contract but some libertarians say, well, if I buy the book, I own it 100 percent. It's like, well, that's not actually true. You, you theoretically could have a contract. You could have a co-ownership system. right? They don't like that because it's not – it's neat. It's not neat neat and clean. It's messy, um, just like the easement issue. Like, I mean even Hoppe talks about this. You could have a town that has a, a right-of-way over a street or down to, the, down to the river to fish, but they don't have full ownership over every use of the land, so someone else could build a house on it, but they can't block the path. Yeah. So that's complicated and messy, and that's what the common law does. The common law handles these things, but it's not – it doesn't satisfy the rationalists who want to write down everything in a code and address every situation in a clean, clear-cut way. But it's um, still – Sorry to interrupt, but it still it still comes back to that same consistent principle of self ownership and property mm -hmm. rights coming from that because it does. Like you know, like when I say, "Oh, well, you don't have the right to block me in here," and they say, "Well, how you know you're not imposing a greater right? You're simply yeah. saying I was already this is already my path, and you're yeah. interfering with something I'm already doing." It's like that first person. You know, it's like it's a little bit like and correct. And, and actually, this attaches a little bit to what the point I would like to make with regards to land ownership. But it's a little bit like with the way I conceptualize land ownership, and I'm using the quotation marks because I don't view land itself as like property, but merely just what we are like the area that we are occupying with Correct. our property or ourselves. So it's like if I go for a, let's say we've got some area of commons, like just unowned, unowned, unowned land, and I decide to have a picnic there, I don't necessarily own the land, but while I'm having my picnic, I do have Correct. the right over that area. Now, as Correct. soon as I get up and leave, somebody else could have a picnic in that same spot because Correct. I don't own that land. You, you've Whereas basically abandoned. You've a, you've had a temporary. I would I would still t theoretically, uh, the law might have distinctions, but from a libertarian point of view, I would call all rights are property rights. So all rights are ownership rights. So like let's say you rent a car from Avis or Hertz, and you have the car for three days. You, you actually are the owner of that car in a, in a sense, right? It's divided because you don't have the right to do everything with the car. You can't sell it. You can't destroy it. You can't drive it to another country. Um, you, know, you can't paint it, but you have the right to use it. So that is an ownership right. It's temporary, and it's limited, but it's an ownership right, and it expires in three days or whatever, just like the picnicking thing. You, you have a temporary right, and then you abandon it. Someone else can, can use it again. This all had to do with how 
property rights are always um, it's a general principle that's applied in different ways according to the nature of the thing that is owned. Like you own you own uh, animals in one way, like by branding cows. You own a piece of land in one way, which would basically be the ownership of that surface area, right? You own an apple in another way. You own your body in yet another way, but it's all applications of the same general principle of the right to exclusive control, depending upon the nature of how you got possession of it and how you're using it in a practical way. Yeah, but I mean, just to differentiate, for example, what I would call arbitrary ownership claims over land from valid property ownership claims. Like, for example, if you're farming some land, then you you own the, your, your crops that you're farming. You own the, you know, you, and you're using that area and, and all the rest of it. So you don't need to have that kind of, because the, the problem is, is like someone who's opposing, say, private property, often commonly argument, they always bring in land because it's nice and easy for them because they can say, well, no one created the land. You know, I can talk Correct. about how I built my house and how I built my factory and I can tear apart their arguments about the difference between a factory and a house because there is no real difference Whether Correct. I, if i built it myself it's a building and what i use it for Correct. is irrelevant if it's my rightfully owned property um but when they talk about land they do come in with a valid point no one created the land it's part of our shared environment etc cetera, etc cetera. but the point i would then counter them with is, is yeah but using their same ethos of occupancy and use if i'm farming that land or i've got a house on that land which is my rightfully owned property then i am occupying and using that area area i don't i don't need to quote unquote own the land as property just like i don't need to own the land on the area that i stand at any moment in time because somebody would be aggressing against me while i'm standing there even though i don't do you know what i'm saying like they don't, i don't need yeah. to own the land because i own myself i don't need to own the land under my house because i own my house you know i don't you know but well, so yeah, it makes sense, but I, I think I, I, I think I disagree with one thing you said, which is that that they have a point when they say that um, um, you own your house because you created it because you built it. I think that is actually a mistake that came from the way Locke worded his homesteading argument, and it's led to all kinds of confusion in, in proper in political theory for a few hundred years. Um, creation is not a source of property rights at all. The reason that you own the house is not because – because if you believe that, you basically believe in property rights in value, right? which is contrary to Austrianism and to political theory in general because you don't create the matter in the house. All you created was a different arrangement of the structure, and it has more value to you. right? So what you're saying is the land has some intrinsic value because it was already there, and you didn't create that, so you don't own it. The, that argument presupposes that uh, that – that ownership comes from creation. And so because you didn't create the land, which is what the Georges argued, right? Like you didn't create the land. So it's okay to tax you on the value of the land, but not the improvements, right? This well, is the root. Sorry, the, I don't this mean. is the root of the intellectual property mistake is the idea that property rights come from creation and they come from value creation, uh, which is what Rand argues. Um, they don't come from that. They come from being the first to use and to put something to use in a way that puts up a visible connection or a link between you and that property that that makes you the first user. That's why you have a property right in things is because you were before them. That's it. It's simply because you used it first in a well, demonstrable way. Um, 
Well, no, I think I'd have to push back on that for two reasons. Because one, I mean, the using it first thing, like I say, if I if I use an area for a picnic and then I move on in an abandoned way, there's no lasting property rights because that's come from first use alone. But also the issue of creation is like, I understand what you're saying because it's all just, it's all the same matter. It's all the yeah, same. Hold, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Let me, let me clarify something. So property rights come from the word private property is a little bit misleading. It really should be public because the whole essence of property is to establish borders of property or boundaries that other people can see visibly so they know what to respect, right? They, the whole purpose of property rights is to avoid conflict. It can only avoid conflict if people can see a link between some human actor and some resource so they know who the owner is, so they know what to avoid trespassing on, right? So all property rights have to have some kind of visible uh, connection between the owner and the thing. So in a farm, you would put up a fence or you would you would transform the, the land uh, for an apple. I click, I picked the apple from the tree in the forest. Now I'm holding the apple. I'm possessing it. So it's clearly in my possession. That's another visible link. Uh, I'm wearing a sheep. Skin, I'm wearing an animal skin as, as clothing. I have a spear that I made. My property is obviously has a connect a link to me because I'm the one who can visibly control my body with my with my will. Um, but in the picnic case, I leave and I, I don't transform it at all. So I abandoned it because I didn't make any effort to, to establish any kind of permanent boundaries or borders that other people could see. So it's just the way I'm using it. It's my choice not to prop it's my choice not to invest the effort to border or put a boundary. If I if I have a picnic and I put a fence up around it and I maintain it and I maintain ownership of it and I claim ownership of it, then I think other someone else cannot come and use it for a picnic because I've I've now I've homesteaded it permanently. So there's you can homestead something temporarily or you can homestead it permanently. It depends upon your intention and what you did to put up borders. Well, yeah, but I mean, just to labor that point though, I mean the I could have my picnic forever. I don't even need to put up a fence. I could just be there forever. I could like, Correct. I, you know, yeah, Correct. like, like, like the Native Americans who would Correct. have their little areas. They'd move on, but you could Correct. just stay there. They could stay there for Correct. the same place. Um, so I'm not even sure. It I suppose I'm. I suppose in my own head, I'm struggling to divorce the transformation that you described from the creation that I'm conceptualizing in my head. Like you know, because I suppose from my point of view, I'm saying it, it comes from creation in the sense that because you own yourself, then you own the products of your actions. So if I if I create a table from a tree, then I own that table. I didn't own the tree as property because I didn't create that tree. Now someone could say, well, it's the same wood. I didn't. But create you never the wood. create anything. So that's the point. So I just the, the, you're you're repeating the a version of the Lockean argument that okay. You own yourself, which is another reason I want to say you own your body, because if you say self, then you start saying you own your labor. You just said your actions, which is even it's even it's even more nonsensical. You don't own your actions. Your actions are what you do with your body, which you own. Right. So what Locke said is you own yourself because God gave it to us and therefore you own your your labor because you labor with yourself or your body. And therefore, when you mix your labor with something that God gave to us in commons that was effectively unowned, then you inextricably bind it with your labor. And because you own your labor, now you own that thing you've mixed your labor with. That argument is needlessly uh, complicated and, and wrong, I think. You own the thing you mix your labor with not because you own your labor, which you don't own. Labor is not an owned thing. It's just Why? an action you perform because you don't own your actions. Ownership is the right to exclusive control over a scarce resource over which there can be conflict. So if you own your body, 
you own what you, you, you have the ability to do what you want with it as long as you don't commit trespass against someone else. But you don't own your action and your body. That's double counting, right? How can well, you own your actions? Well, I mean, I agree that it's double counting, but not in the sense that that invalidates that you own your actions, but just almost that it, it almost doesn't need to be said that you own your actions because obviously you do because you own your body and your actions are just an extension of that. I don't. Well, it's like, it's like saying, so if you own, if you own your home and you, you decide to take a shower or you decide to sing a song, you wouldn't say I own my body and I own my house. And I also have the right to sing and I also have the right to shower. Well, I wouldn't say it because it's redundant to say it, but it would be true. It's it's literally it's not true. It's just it's just a consequence. You have the ability to take a shower unmolested because you own the house and no one else has the right to interfere with it. So it gives you the ability to have liberty and to do what you want within that property. But you never have the you don't have an independent right to sing because it's not a it's not a scarce resource that there could be conflict over. Yeah, I have to admit, I'm struggling to understand that because I, in my mind, I have a right to sing because I have a right over my own body. And that's just exercising the right. You, you, you can put it that way. But as long as you keep in mind that it's just a consequence of having a right to your body. Okay? Sure, yeah, uh, for sure. But, but that's but, why I think you own your actions. It may only be a consequence of you owning your body that you own your actions. Okay, you could, you could, then you could say you have you own your actions, but that leads to confusion because then you'll have some people say, "Well, that that means that you have responsibility for your actions too." Because which is I also think is true. Which is also true. I mean, if but it's not because you own your actions that you have responsibility for them. Why you have responsibility for your actions because you're an agent and other people have property rights in their and their resources and if your action invades their borders you've committed a wrong against them that's what responsibility is ownership is the right to control not a responsibility so for example if you own a, a knife and someone steals the knife from you and they, they they commit a crime with that knife are you responsible for the crime that someone committed with the knife oh i understand what you're saying i mean so I ownership think, ownership doesn't yeah. imply responsibility ownership just implies the right to use something yeah, I understand what you're saying. Although someone could, yeah, I understand what you're saying. I mean, I, th I think from my point of view, and this might, it's, it's not a big issue because, like you say, with goodwill, we can get past slight differences in yes. how we use language. Yes. But from my point of view, the reason why I think of it as ownership is the way I define ownership is incorporating rights and responsibility. So, like, I own that car, which means I have right to it, and it also means I'm responsible for it. If that car blew I, I, up, I totally, I totally disagree. Okay, um, let me explain why that line of thinking leads to intellectual property and confusion. Because, um, so people will commonly say, um, you know, the expression "your right to swing your fist ends where my nose begins," that kind of mm -hmm. thing, right? Uh, or they'll so so I will argue, for example, one problem with intellectual property is that um, it gives. It effectively is what we call a negative servitude or a negative easement. It gives a third party the right to use force to prevent me from using my resource as I see fit. So a copyright means I can't print a book on my own printer, or a patent means I can't make a carburetor in my garage shaped in a certain way if someone has a patent on it. So it's a limitation on my property rights. Now, the comeback I get from status and IP people, or do I repeat myself, <laughs> is that… Well, all property rights are limited. They're limited because you can't use you can't use your fist to point someone in the nose, and you can't use your knife to stab someone, and you can't use your gun to shoot someone, and you can't use your car to crash into them. 
Those are not – so the, the confusion there is that people think of that as a limitation on property rights, and then they'll say, aha, so all property rights are limited. I mean by that argument, you could say, well, what's wrong with rape? Well, you're violating the property rights in the woman's body. Well, but all property rights are limited. But their argument so, seems to be forgetting that the only limit on property rights is its own definition. But it's not a limit. So that's the mistake. It's not a limit on property rights. It's a limit on action. We have to distinguish action from property rights. So your actions are limited by property rights. That's what property rights are. They're limits on what you can do in your actions. So, for example, I can't invade the borders of your property, including your body and your, your land and your car, uh, with any means. Whether it's my own body or whether it's a knife or a gun, even if I don't own the gun, if I steal someone's gun, I can't – I'm not entitled to shoot you with that gun. So it's got nothing to do with a limit on property rights. It's a limit on action, and when you I, see that – when yeah. you see that all rights are limits on actions, they're not limits on other property rights, then that whole argument for intellectual property goes away because you can't – you can't now wave off the objection which I have, which is that… Intellectual property limits my property rights in my in my my land and my and my factory, because the only justifiable limitations on prop on on action is actions that violate property rights, and the only property rights are the ones assigned in accordance with the rules that I laid out earlier, which is first first use and contra contractual conveyance, right? And so, if someone says you can't build this car because it's too similar to the car that I have a patent on, the, the only justification they would have to prevent me from using my own resources as I see fit is if that use is an action that invades their own property rights. So if I build a car, is it trespassing against their car? No, it's not taking their car. Does it trespass against the borders of their property? No. Is it a violation of a contract? No, because I don't have a contract with them. Um, so then you'll have intellectual property advocates now they have to fall back and they say well it's a violation of my intellectual property rights but that's a circular argument because that's the thing that's in the discussion anyway I, this is another thing i get pedantic about but it's important to it's important to understand that property rights are not limits on other property rights they're limits on actions I, I do understand what you're saying i think i suppose from my point of view it's just about talking to them on their own terms because if they're talking about saying ah i got you there's a limit on the property rights yes. my response to that would be the only limit like i say using their language yes the only limit on property rights yes. is its own definition yes. so for them to try to use it with ip it's like well if you steal my car or if you punch my face yeah. and all these things i can i can clearly yes. point to where you're violating my property rights yes if i use your idea you can't show me where i'm violating correct it because i've not taken anything from you you know i agree with you i agree with you and you can make the argument it's just it's just that it's needlessly it's needlessly complex and you, and you have to unfold and untangle so many false lines of argument on their side that are unnecessary if you just have a straight cleaner more simple but yeah you're, you're technically right you could you can envision property rights as being the right to use your property as you see fit as long as you don't violate the like rights of other people but but then you've almost conceded that property rights are limited by other property rights, and so then it confuses the issue when people say, well, so don't you see that it's not a violation on your property rights to prevent you from using your your, your property to print a book or to… I can see how they would do that, but that's only i i i see that it, it only makes it easy it makes it easier for them to lose sight of the fact that they're engaged in question begging that's what's happening but they're still engaged in question begging because they're presupposing that intellectual property rights are legitimate 
So therefore, you can have this 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 conflict between property rights, and you have to decide which one limits the other or whatever. But the problem is their argument is still that it's circular and it's it's question begging. They're just making an assertion. They're just and and by the same reasoning, even within their framework, you could say, well, you could make the same argument about slavery, about rape. You could say, well, this guy has the right to rape that girl because, after all, she doesn't have an absolute right to her body, right? Because all property rights are limited. Mm -hmm. I mean, so maybe my right to have sex is a property right that is greater than her right to object. I mean, yeah, I understand yeah. what you're saying. You I, mean, what I mean, yeah, and, and and I understand because there's a lot of very dishonest conversations out there where people almost jump on the opportunity to even when they know that's not what's what's being said or implied. I suppose from my point of view, I just think that these people are, are purposely taking it dishonestly. And although I, I understand, like, yeah, because like like you say, with your problem with oh, if we say that creation. Uh, you know, attaches ownership, then people are going to use that with IP and then they, yep. you know, lose sight of things. So I understand where you come from. I suppose. And value too. And value too, because they'll, they'll say something like, well, if something has value and if you can sell it on the market, you must own it and you can sell an idea. You know, you can, you can sell your, and you can sell your labor services as an employer. So you, of course you own your labor. That's just another confused uh, legal argument because they don't understand the, the Rothbardian title transfer theory of contract. Uh, and what and, and the and the difference between economic reality and, and and legal issues. So, you know, the word sale is just a shorthand description of really, in economic terms, calling something a sale is just an identification of the of the motivation of an action. So, like, why did I hand you my orange? Well, so I could get the apple. So we call that a sale, right? Why did I give the girl an orange so she would smile? So I guess you could say she sold you her smile to get the orange, but it's just a way of describing the motivations of why people perform actions. Um, but if you if you go too much into this, um, um, it's almost reification, right? So we use a concept to explain something, and then we we reify it as some real existing entity. So if someone gives me money for performing an action, then because it's analogous to you giving me money for for an apple, which is a which is the transfer of title to the apple. <clears throat> if you give me money to paint your fence, then it's analogous because in both cases the money motivated me to do something. In one case, it motivated me to give you title to the apple. In the other case, the money motivated me to paint the fence. So they're they're analogous economically. So, but one's a sale of an apple in terms of we transfer a title, and and the other is the I just I did something you wanted me to do. I painted the fence for you, and you got what you wanted. But we if we if we extend the analogy too far, we say well that means I sold my labor because otherwise what did I get paid for? So I, and you can only sell things that you own, so I must own my labor. So then you start thinking well labor is a thing that we own, so if I use my labor to create an idea or an, or an invention, I own that too because I created it. So you see how this leads to confusion if you're not real careful yeah and i, and I, I would say 90 percent of the time it's honest it's just confusion because um because of the way political philosophy and law has developed over the last couple hundred years oh for sure and and to be honest the reason why i brought up the example of david friedman and the different um definition of anarcho-capitalism is even i mean you know again there was no disrespect to david but we there are two people who both have kind of similar ideas in many aspects and definitions both coming into a conversation with goodwill and intent but can't agree on a definition of something as fundamental as anarcho-capitalism. So. And I wanted to turn, I wanted to return for a second to the David Friedman thing. Cause so one thing a lot of libertarians take for granted is they sort of almost 
reify contract, they think if you sign something, well, first of all, they think contracts have to be written, which they don't. And if you sign something, that's the contract. It's not always the contract. The contract is just a transfer of ownership of something. But they assume that they assume that let's say you're in some kind of David Friedman, Walter Block, Hans Hermann Hoppe enclave, some kind of private covenant community, which has a set of rules, that those rules could include drug laws and slavery. Okay. But that presupposes that that certain uses of force would be justified, right? Which I totally disagree with as a liber as a libertarian. I think there are certain general, universal, uh, immutable principles of justice, which is which is what the libertarian non-aggression principle is. It is unjust to use force against someone unless they have committed force. Okay, so merely by living in some shopping mall, <laughs> some private neighborhood, and they have a they don't want you to use drugs, and I use drugs. Does that mean I've committed aggression against someone such that they're entitled to use force against me? No. Or if I say I promise to be your slave, that they're entitled to use force against me to prevent me from running away, which is what Walter Block argues, misapplying Rothbard's contract, title transfer theory of contract? No, I don't think so. So I think Friedman is wrong. You could not have slavery or drug laws in a private enclave. You could have an area that will kick you out. Right. Or that you if can it's leave. rightfully owned. Like, yeah. Yeah. If it's rightfully owned or they can put social pressure on you, like make your life difficult because no one likes you living there, walking, walking around naked in your front yard all the time or worshiping <laughs> Satan and putting up a burning pentagram on your lawn every night in a Christian community. I mean, you're, you're not going to have a pleasant life and they can they can push you out by social pressure or ostracism or if they want to be careful about it, they can have a big restrictive covenant on the whole area that says you know, everyone can use their property as they see fit, except for the following things. You can't paint your house orange, and you can't have a pig farm next to, uh, you know, this residential area, and you can't, uh, you can't openly practice homosexuality. I don't know, whatever crazy. Now, I think most of those rules are uneconomic, and they wouldn't work, just like discrimination against, you know, blacks or women on the free market is going to tend to be costly. And would be tend to be, you know, it's just not going to be feasible. But in principle, if you want to have a, an area that is willing to sacrifice their own economic prosperity and well-being for the, for the pursuit of some kind of um, some kind of lifestyle choice, hey, if they can do it, they can do it. But that still wouldn't be the same as a drug law or voluntary slavery, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, and and the thing is, is I think whether you're talking about this or whether we're going back to the issue of like you know creation assigning ownership, I think it always comes back to self ownership for me. I mean, like, I and I do I do agree with what you're saying with regards to the problem with people using that language and and like attaching it to things like IP. But I suppose from my personal defense against that or my way the way i've always tried to simplify it to people when things get convoluted and they try to play word games with you whether they're doing it intentionally or 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 you know whether it's an honest you know misunderstanding the thing i always try to do is bring it back to self-ownership so like when i talk about creation assigning ownership I, I, I say yeah, but it's important to understand why your creation of this house means that you own it because you own yourself yes. which is yes. also why yes you can't claim ownership over ideas because yes. there's no way you can hold on to those because Correct. other people can take them out of the ether without Correct. violating your self-ownership i can't take your house yeah. without violating your self-ownership or, or, or a better or I think actually a better argument is that um, um, if you reveal information to people publicly, then you can't complain if they use it. 
and when you sell uh, an invention like a, an improved mousetrap or something or a better television, you're you're telling the world about your new invention because you have to tell them to sell the product. Or if you publish a book, you're you're telling the world about this pattern of words, <laughs> you know. And if you see, if you reveal information publicly, you can't complain if they use the information. Um, uh, and, um, David Friedman, the one thing I will criticize him for. Um, is he is wobbly on intellectual property, and that is because I believe he – I don't think he believes in rights. I don't know if he believes in self-ownership like you just stated, um, and I don't think he understands intellectual property um, because even if you had one of his enclaves that for some reason had a contract where everyone there agreed not to use their own property as they as – they, as in the most efficient ways they wanted or to have freedom of expression and say things they wanted to say or to print print stuff or paint paintings that they wanted to paint right if everyone stupidly agreed to such restrictions on pain of being excommunicated and kicked out of the community that still wouldn't be an intellectual property because it's not a real right in the law not an in rem right um and you can easily see this because it wouldn't apply to other communities right so all the neighboring communities um would be able to learn from the, the books and the movies and the paintings and the inventions of these other enclaves and copy them freely, which shows that it's not a property right because the same is not the true not true for real property rights. Like if someone owns a car in enclave number one, then someone in enclave number two still couldn't go take that car without violating his property rights because they'd have to go into that community and do it. Right. Yeah. But the fact that you're able to copy an idea that you hear about from some neighboring enclave and do it in enclave two without violating any contract of enclave one because you're not a part of it shows that it's not a real property right. So anyway, he's wrong about that. And this is what you get when you don't have a, a theory of rights that and any principles basically of, of, of property rights. Yeah, I mean, one commenter when I had that debate, one of the comments I got um, sort of defending his position was kind of saying that he was approaching it from a utilitarian kind of, look, if we run society like this, we'll probably get this kind of thing. Uh, whereas obviously I'm taking it more from the principal idea of, look, if we own ourselves, then this, this and this gives us property rights and what is and isn't justified use of force. Um Another point I think it's worth mentioning, which you touched on with regards to like, you know, other ways which we can discourage or encourage behavior outside of yeah. the non-aggression principle, because because that's another point I like to make to people. And I think it's important to emphasize because there's this assumption that every that for a libertarian or a voluntarist or anyone who identifies with a non-aggression principle, there's this assumption from many of the detractors that we support everything that's not a violation yeah. of the non-aggression yeah. principle. Like, yeah. Yeah. like, like, like that's the only morality that we have. And it's like, no, no, I, I have my own subjective morality. I have things that I agree with and disagree with reasons why I wouldn't want to be friends with somebody. And there's lots of peaceful, non-violent ways which we can encourage and discourage different activities within our society outside of using force what the non-aggression principle about is about is about when we're actually justified in using force against people when we can say correct they're not allowed to do that and we can stop them from doing yeah. it because they're not allowed to do it well, that's different from like i don't think that you should cheat on your girlfriend but you've not violated anybody's rights if i mean i'm i don't have that view but a lot of people have the view that you know you shouldn't have sex before marriage but again two consensual active act, um adults can can do that you know it's because they're not violating rights our own personal morality is different i mean uh, one example i use to really simplify it is as i say like look i want to live in a society where if there's an old lady struggling to cross the street anybody walking by would help her correct but 
that is a subjective morality thing. That's like a preference. That's something I want to encourage, behavior we want to encourage through peaceful means. And maybe we, you know, if we saw people not doing that, we'd want to discourage from, again, through peaceful means. But where we can actually use force is where we can say that she, they're not allowed to mug the old lady or otherwise violate her. You know, it's, it's that difference between saying, okay, it's wrong not to help her across the road, but it's not a crime not Correct. to help her across the road. Well, so go on, go ahead. Well, no, no, you're going, you were going to. Uh, so I run, so I, I got a couple of thoughts on that. So ironically, so we, we libertarians necessarily believe in lots of private things outside of the law because um, we're not just libertarians. We're, we're human beings. Mm. And, and the role that the state, you know, the state has monopolized and co-opted many features of life, um, communications, the military, the police, the law, the courts, uh, education, you know, um, things like this. Roads, we're not against roads. We think there need to be roads and education. We just think they should be done privately, right? Um, and same thing with, with welfare and charity and being benevolent and helping other people. Uh, and, but what's ironic is that so we believe in this kind of thick set of social things that would emerge uh, privately to fill in for the uh, the institutions the state has monopolized now, right? Like we would, you know, if you take away wealth, private welfare for the poor, we would have charity. Now this doesn't satisfy the the status because they will, unless you promise that there will be a guarantee that every poor person will be taken care of. In other words, they have a right to welfare. Or they have a right to charity. Then they're going to insist on it being a right in the law. Although even that's not a guarantee because the state goes bankrupt and then the welfare system goes bankrupt. So there's no guarantees anyway. But, but ironically, you have these libertarians who are opposed to the private employer vaccine mandates, which is what we would expect there to be in the absolute. When we say the government should not have done the lockdowns and the vaccine mandates, I totally agree. But that means that private society would have its own ways of dealing with this, and not everyone would agree. You know, you might want to go to the grocery store and they require a mask and you don't like it, but that's what would happen. Some people would, some people wouldn't. Um, well, our solution, the, sorry, I was going to say our solution to that tainted coercion is to get rid of all the coercion. Like when they say, oh, well, correct. that's not fair because that's in force. It's like, well, a bit like when I said about the conservative argument for drug laws, they say, well, I'm forced to pay for your health care. So I have a right for this. It's like, well, I don't agree that you should be forced to pay for my health care. And I also don't agree that you have the right to tell me what I put in my body. You know, like I, I yeah. oppose both, you know, and it's the same thing with this. Yes. Um, employees should have the right to set whatever demands they want on people they're employing, but we should also live in a free society where other employees have the right to not make those demands or, or have the opposite demands even and, and only want none, you know, I mean, you know, that's, that's the problem with, that they do point out that is a valid point, like I say, like, you know, if all the supermarkets don't allow non-vaccinated people, we've got nowhere to shop because Correct. the government aren't allowing alternatives to, to, to spring up. Right. Our argument to that is yes, but that's the problem. The problem is, yeah. is that we're not allowed our alternatives. Yeah, well, one of our arguments as libertarians against antitrust law or competition law, I think you call it in Europe, um, which basically is the state limiting private so-called monopolies, which is ironic and hypocritical because the, the biggest monopolies is run by the state, of course. Um, um, our argument is that, well, in a free market, when the government doesn't intervene and give people monopolies like patent and copyright, which is a monopoly – protection that the government gives people, and then people wonder why there are monopolies that emerge because of this. Uh, um, we think that, that there would be competition, and 
it would be very difficult for a real monopoly. In fact, I think impossible on economic grounds, but very difficult for monopolies to emerge on the free market. And so in a free market where the government wasn't intervening, you wouldn't have every employer require vaccines. You would have some that, that did the other way. You wouldn't have every company racially discriminate against blacks or whatever because they're going to pay a price and some some would some would emerge that would be tolerant and and um and diverse you know to get the business and to be decent people or whatever um so that's a little bit ironic uh there and i think also your point about how not everything that's immoral should be illegal according to libertarians i think actually there's a deeper point there so that view is the kind of view that we libertarians only view rights violations as a, as a proper subset of morality. So like there's a whole variety of things that we think are immoral but not should, should not be illegal. But I think it even goes further than that. I think that we don't even necessarily as libertarians believe that it's necessarily immoral to violate rights. Like it's not that the aggression is a subset of rights violations. I'm sorry. It's not that rights violations and aggression are a subset of, of immoral actions. They're intersecting sets because just like some things can be immoral but not a rights violation, some things can be um, a rights violation but moral, maybe. But if, uh, like in some cases, you might be obligated morally to violate someone's rights, um, but then you have to pay the price under the legal system for doing that. Like so emergency we, we, situations where you've exactly. got to break into someone's house to exactly. call for an ambulance because someone's been hit by a car or, or yeah. something like that. Yeah. So the law is really orthogonal to morality. And in fact, I think the best way to look at it is like the non-aggression principle is not really a direct guide to personal conduct. I mean, most of the time it is, but it's not directly that. Um, it, it is most of the time in the sense that most rights violations are immoral, I would say. But that's my view as a person not as libertarian mm. libertarianism really has no stance on on the morality of rights violations one way or the other it's just it's it's what douglas denoyal and rasmussen call a metanorm um the non-aggression principle really and the property rights that it that it identifies <clears throat> are guides to what laws are justified right that means it's a guide to when force would be justified to defend that right but it doesn't speak to the morality of the of the of, of you standing on your rights and enforcing your rights in some cases. And it doesn't speak to the morality of sometimes disregarding rights. It's almost like saying, if there is a right, this is where it is. Like if 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 I mean I suppose uh, and I don't know if I'm just saying the same thing in a slightly different way, but the way I kind of conceptualize it or, or present it to people when I'm talking about it from a morality point of view is I say like look look morality itself is not objectively true. You know, I can't say you own yourself and I can say that as a moral fact. But yeah. what I can say is that if we want to have a moral framework, if we want to have the concept of rights at all, the only way we can have that in a way that's internally consistent. Yes is with the concept of self-ownership yes with that right i totally agree yeah and so that's the way i kind of conceptualize it's a, it's it. a hypothetical argument because it respects what hume pointed out like you can't get an ought or a norm from an is or a factual statement i think that's actually true so all these things we're talking about are political ethics or norms they all have to rest upon earlier or lower norms or values and you can never get them from an is statement so the genius of hoppe's argumentation ethics is that he points out that um Although this is true, you can only – so I would not say like property rights are a moral fact or that they exist because that's that's another term that's loaded with potential for equivocation <laughs> um, and philosophical 
debate and confusion. It's simply that they can only – that's the only ones that can be justified, and to justify a norm, you can never do it by pointing to an is statement, which is one problem with the natural law type arguments. They try to say because the universe is this way, here's what you should do. They're always as – as Hume pointed out, they always sneak in a norm. Like, um, and so I think it's fine to it's fine to rest your higher level political norms or ethics on lower level ones. You just need to explicitly identify them. And what Hoppe does is he shows that there are some that are presupposed in the very activity of, of civilized, peaceful, argumentative discourse, which you have to engage in when you seek to use reason to justify or to debate what norms we should have. So these people that get together in a civilized way. They are already adopting a certain set of, of common basic norms or values, and those are the ones that the higher-level norms have to be compatible with, and the only ones that they're compatible with is self-ownership because in, a, in, in essence, self-ownership is presupposed by everyone getting together to discuss norms <clears throat> because you don't have a discussion like that with your slave who you're claiming an ownership right over. You're already claiming the right to hit them over the head, and you can't justify that. Because when you sit down and treat them as an equal who has equal rights to you, that's incompatible with treating them as if they don't have equal rights to you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we all see the world slightly differently, and and and, and you can argue that it's all subjective in in a certain and uh, level of analysis. But at the end of the day, we all have to have a even if it's a relatively low resolution agreement, we all have to have a common agreement on basic right. reality. We'll have to agree that you are a separate person to me. You know, if someone comes in and says, oh, we're all just atoms. It's and all those are energy. facts. Yeah, th those are factual presuppositions. And there are some like you can prove that, you know, you have to presuppose that other people exist. You have to prove that you have to you have, you have to presuppose that consciousness is possible and that there's such a thing as existence. Right. There's reality. You have to presuppose all these things. You have to presuppose the law of non-contradiction. Right, because the whole point of making an argument is to show what is true as opposed to what's not true. This is Ayn Rand made some of these points too. So does sort of the the realistic Kantians like Mises and Hoppe. Um, and but some of these presuppositions are normative, and all you need is one. All you need is one. It doesn't matter how small it is. The tiniest, smallest, most trivial norm. Once you admit that there's one that's universally uh, present in all such discussions. Then you have something you can hook a whole edifice onto, and and you and you and you escape this relativism uh, that some critics level and say, oh, it's all it's all sub totally subjective and relative, and um, um, and there there's no you know, and they'll say things like, well, because you can't prove that there's a moral fact about the universe, there are no moral facts. It's like that's not the point. If you want to justify a political norm, you have to have a discussion with some people, and but when you do that, you're you are yourself admitting that you believe in peace. And you favor peace. If you don't, then we're not having a genuine argument, and I'm going to treat you like uh, an enemy or an animal. And I'm, uh, you know, but to the extent that we're having a genuine discourse, then we're all adopting certain peaceful proto. I call them proto-libertarian norms. You could summarize it as calling it self-ownership. Yeah, and then that that's why it is the proto. It's the prototype for all other property rights. Everything flows from that. I agree hundred percent, and. Uh, we'll probably get into the end of the of the conversation because we've gone over an hour now, um, and we haven't actually got onto the nation's assembly. If, if you want to, I don't know if you want to do a second one or if you want to spend another 
20 minutes on the other thing we can or we can we can do it in separate talks up to you um well if you're willing i'd i'd go for both options and perhaps do another 20 minutes if you're up for it okay and, yeah let's and go 20 more minutes maybe have a second conversation if need be you know sure um i mean the reason why i thought that was a good segue into the nations of sanity projects and just to introduce that to you and what that's all about um Basically, the idea of the Nations of Sanity project is built on the assertion that the only way to, oh, sorry, let me start again. It's built on the assertion that crime and therefore law can be objectively defined by the concept of self-ownership. And the idea presented is basically saying that we should create a free society by establishing the non-aggression principle as the law through a universal peace agreement, basically making it mm. the, the terms of peace between all people. Um, and just to get more specific, it's a three-part peace agreement that we present, which is presented as part one being just the basic agreement to make the non-define law using the non-aggression principle. Part two is called lines in the sand, which is about setting the limits of tolerance over differing interpretations, basically differentiating the black and white from the fuzzy edges. Um, and then part three is about rightful ownership which is really just ratifying property property rights through the through the non-aggression principle mm. um that's the non, that's the nation's sanity project that's the idea we present it's about kind of presenting voluntarism in this economically neutral way just saying look there's lots of ways we can organize our society economics and all the rest of it and there's lots of you know good arguments to have you had on that but the basic idea that i think everyone needs to unite on is that crime and law can and should be objectively defined by the concept of what I call self-ownership or um, bodily ownership, as you might call it, you know, the idea that we will have right over only ourselves. Well, uh, I haven't heard of this before, but it sounds, I mean, sounds very similar to the whole idea of the non-aggression principle yeah. and the idea of having oaths, you know, uh, people do, uh, they've, uh, I think there was something called the Declaration of Unanimous Consent back in the 70s, L. Neil Smith, who just recently died. Uh, I think he was behind that. Um, and then the Libertarian Party requires things like that, right? You have to say you forswear all this. So I don't know if your idea is to have just a different formulation of it or to have a project where we kind of work out some of the details or whether it's um, – I mean because there's another project I'm involved with. It's called the Live and Let Live Project by uh, attorney Mark Victor, and it's very similar to what you're talking about. It's like putting the non-aggression principle in a different, in a different formulation, like just asking people, can't we all agree that we should – live and let live you know and he's writing a book on it and it basically parallels the non-aggression principle but in like softer language or in a different formulation like who can who can really disagree that we should live and let live right or like you're saying who can who can disagree with the idea that we shouldn't hit each other or, or, or this so i don't know if your idea is is it to have a treaties or have a thing we sign or some kind of universally accepted online repository or or, or what is it yeah, I mean, I'm I'm somewhat fluid over precisely how it's implemented, but the basic idea is that is to say that this needs to be our agreed upon terms of peace. Like we need to formalize our understanding mm. of what is and isn't a crime mm. in this mm. objective sense, you know. Mm. And then everything. So, so I suppose I suppose the way I kind of because I understand that you know this isn't new in in the total sense i you know i didn't invent the non-aggression principle voluntarism all of these things are already movements and they're all presenting a very similar kind of idea i suppose the thing that's just specific to the nation's sanity idea is just saying look 
it's, it's, I mean, although there, there are other ideas on, look, you know, we could have collectives that work like this and we could have this that works like that, but they're all ideas that could be dismissed. The one thing that we're kind of, that defines the project is saying the one thing that has to happen, the one thing that's written in stone, if you like, <laughs> is that the non-aggression principle defines law, that the, the only, you know, that, that's how we need to define. And then whatever societies and systems that we have under that, you know, can all live under that kind of the terms of peace. I suppose I just yeah. want to make those the, the universal yeah. terms of peace. And the the idea of the three part, because originally it was just going to be that agreement on its own. But the reason why I split it into the three parts is because in addition to having the basic agreement, which is what the part one covers, there's the issue of fuzzy edges. There's the issue of the gray areas. There's the issue of the, you know, like we've got what's nice and black and white and then we've got those little gray areas those fuzzy edges where people are you know um where, where there's areas of agreement and disagreement and i suppose what i'm saying is is the way to deal with that is to have this universal standard where we separate the fuzzy edges from the black and white so we have these lines in the sand these limits of tolerance over differing interpretations so that we can have a truly yeah. universal understanding i mean the example i use when i describe this is uh, the analogy i like to use is the desert and the grasslands and i sort of say well you know if you think of the desert representing everything that's definitely a violation of the non-aggression principle and the grassland representing everything that's definitely not a violation of the non-aggression principle if you think of a desert and a grassland in a geographical sense as you walk from one to the other there's going to be this area in between where the land starts yeah. to get more arid and it's hard to define similar yeah. to how you have these little gray areas in between is that yeah. a violation you know and yeah. my point is is with this line in the sand it's like saying okay well maybe this area in between is hard to define and therefore we can't enforce it as universal law because Correct. who is any one of us to say where the line should be drawn S but same here, with the yeah same with the abortion issue in a sense like it's such an interminable thing or like what what should the age of consent be things like that yeah, exactly. In fact, those are those both examples I use when I give yeah. examples of why this is necessary. And the point is, is just because you have that gray area, it shouldn't destroy the black and white. Just because we yeah. have this, and of like course. with the desert and grassland, just because you've got this little area, that doesn't mean we can no longer define the desert. Of we course. can still draw a line where there's no more grass and it's just sand. That's the desert. And that's how we protect the black and white from the fuzzy edges kind of encroaching into that. And what we would say is like, okay, when it comes to the gray areas, we can't enforce that as part of universal law. So that would have to be negotiated as part of a peaceful yeah. negotiation. Of course, know? of course. I, I agree totally with that. I, a lot of this is similar to things I've spoken on and written about. Um, I kind of laugh because you reminded me what the way you formulated it of like a, a line from Atlas Shrugged, which I just found. Uh, it's, it's that when you said like the one thing we can agree on, we have to agree on, or like the, the, the line in the sand. Like she has this line from Atlas Shrugged where she says, uh, what Galt says, whatever may be open to disagreement, there is one act of evil that may not, the act that no man may commit against others and no man may sanction or forgive. So long as men desire to live together, no man may initiate. Do you hear me? No man may start the use of physical force against others. Like anyway, that idea of line in the sand. Um, you and your listeners <coughs> interested in this topic, um, or people interested in your project, um, take a listen to my recent episode uh, on my podcast three forty five, where it was a, a speech I gave at um, at Porkfest on on libertarian constitutions. And so, I mean, what you're talking about really is analogous to what libertarians have long done, which is they've said like the private common law is largely libertarian, so we could take that as a starting point 
and refine it or correct it to be more libertarian, which I kind of agree with. But also like Randy Barnett in his Structure of Liberty, which I talk about in that speech, um, you know, he points out that you know, there are basically some abstract principles of justice, uh, and then there are legal precepts or the concrete ways they're embodied in a given legal system, and those can vary from society to society. And this is, of course, analogous to what Rothbard and Hoppe and other, and even David Friedman have talked about, where you could have different enclaves with different applications, different rules, different customs, different traditions, different values, um, and those would all play out in more of the more concrete specifics and what you call the gray areas. I just think that uh, and it's also something I've written about before where um, I've criticized libertarians being a little bit too rationalist and desiring to have a written code that specifies every little thing that Walter Block or someone like that – I'm not criticizing Walter. I'm just saying yeah, yeah. Some, some respected thinker would sit down and come up with the code that tells you everything, like deductively from your armchair. So it's it's – I'm criticizing the limits of armchair reasoning, hmm. which means that what's the role of libertarian thinkers and libertarian theory? And I think it's similar to what you've said, and it's what I've, I'm writing about in this libert – I call it Kinsella's Libertarian Constitution because I'm sick of working on committees because I've done things like this, like what you're talking about, uh, 10 times over the years. Um, and I always join on, even though I think most of these projects are kind of fleeting or futile or they're different attempts to do the same thing. Um, but what I think would be useful would be to have a coherent presentation and statement of libertarian principles in the general broad sense. You could call them the line in the sand because these are the things that I think are non-negotiable. And you can start with the non-aggression principle itself, and then you can flesh it out a little bit. But when you start getting into too many abstract, concrete details, you can't do that from your armchair. You have to wait for custom and negotiation to develop the concrete way these things play out in a society. And that's all you could ever expect from a legal system and from political philosophy. It can't sure. solve every problem. Because it, it can't, can't be envisage every scenario. You can't, no, can't imagine in fact, every... In fact, this is what some libertarians, they, they always talk about the fine print and the contract specify. Contracts always have what's called suppletive or gap-filling rules because you have to have those because no contract can ever be exhaustive. It's impossible because – and this is inside of Mises. It's because the future is not knowable. We never know the future. We don't know what's going to happen. So it's impossible whenever you have a contract that has any future performance, you can never know exactly what's going to happen. And, and so you have these clauses, and they also – they almost always require human interpretation, um, which is subjective and – and somewhat unpredictable, which is another reason, by the way, which I think the whole idea of smart contracts on cryptocurrency things is complete nonsense. Um, you, you can never have a smart contract because uh, law cannot be automated, and we don't unless we have artificial intelligence, and we don't have that. And yeah, we we won't have it for, for a long time. So smart contracts is ridiculous. Uh, you you have to have some some role for human judgment, and because of this, people will put in they will agree to and put in their contracts. Uh, a role for some kind of third-party decision maker whose decision they will abide by even if they don't agree because there's nothing else you can do at a certain point, right? Yeah. So I like your idea of having certain core principles and then and then the line in explaining the sand. lines of the sand and explaining where there can be disagreement and where there can't be disagreement. 
Uh, and you could even have meta rules like where they could be disagreement about that and not, you know, so uh, I'd be interested to see how it develops. <laughs> yeah, excellent. I, I appreciate that. I mean, like, like I say, that is very much my thinking with regards to the three parts of the agreement, because I felt like it needed that it needed that line in the sand. It needed to say, OK, look, there are fuzzy edges and we can acknowledge that we don't have to hide from that reality. It's just a fact of life. But that doesn't mean we allow the gray areas to invade the black and white and lose all distinctions because there's still a principle here and there's still uh, a line that we can draw a line in the sand yeah. where we can kind of say on a universal level even if it's like I say it's, it's almost like taking the non-aggression principle and slightly lowering the resolution so that we've got this nice yeah. defined shape yeah. that's universal I and agree. then like and then we say the fuzzy edges like you say are things that can be negotiated well, it's and, a, I mean Hoppe's argumentation ethics does that he just he just points to the core things that we would all agree in in argumentation. We don't agree on the metric system or the or the imperial system of units, but or even what language we should use. But we do agree on some things that you can identify. Um, and in the law, I've always I've often pointed out to people that are a little bit too rationalist in their their kind of OCD fussy desire to have everything exactly perfectly spelled out. Um, you know, if you have property rights. Like let's say in land, you know, two adjoining tracts, Green Acre and Black Acre, we might call them in the law. Um, you know, we have these property rights because people need to use resources and they also need to have a way to avoid conflict over these things. So we we have property rights that are respected, um, that identify an owner and connect them to a given piece of land. But let's say you have two neighboring tracts of land, there's a fence between them. I mean. You're going to run out of resolution when you get to you can't you can't identify exactly where that line is down to the millimeter level. Who can right? sit there's on the always, fence? <laughs> there's always yeah the fence itself has a width right and there's <laughs> there's always going to be some uncertainty and imprecision at the borders of land and that's not I wouldn't call that a continuum or a gray issue necessarily it's just the nature of it's the nature of of living in this world right well yes the, the nature of reality i mean if you want yes. to go if you want to go like i say you, you that's why you can go so pedantic and so um, so what's the word focused in that all of a sudden the boundaries of reality are gone and we're living in the quantum world where everything's happening at once and there's no def you know what i mean it's like so that's why again it's about stepping back lowering the resolution a little yeah. bit to something that's truly universal um, and the reason why i think it's important as well is what you mentioned about like the the, the david friedman enclave for example is i'm happy for these enclaves to have like i say negotiate their own gray areas but the reason why i feel like we need this peace agreement that sets the lines in the sand for the black and white for right. the non-aggression principle is i don't want these enclaves enforcing drug laws and enslaving people and doing various other things correct they can they can organize themselves when it comes to gray areas but they can't step over that black and white they can't step over those what, what are clear violations of of people's rights well, the way private law has developed in the Roman law and the common law and the way international law exists now and has developed is, is somewhat analogous. It's not perfect because the principles are not perfectly libertarian, but they're always somewhat libertarian, right? Because they have to be somewhat libertarian for us to survive and live, to have civilization. So like, for example, in international law, um, in a, you could simplify it and think of it as embodied by treaties, right? But the treaties themselves rest upon the presupposition of what's called tacta sunt servanda, or agreements are to be respected. So that's sort of like a, 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 an a priori uh, international normative presupposition that, that these, these different enclaves or these different states can make agreements with each other which have the binding force of law. Like unless you presuppose that, then the details of every particular treaty don't matter. 
right? So, and then, and then on the other hand, there's what's something called general principles of international law, which is what tends to be adopted between nations by treaties. So if like all the nations of the world always have treaties with each other, which always have certain provisions, like you can't invade someone um, without provocation, or you, there are limits to the rules of war, or, um, or there are certain rights of the citizens when they're traveling that have to be respected, or enforcement of each other's judgments in their courts. These things over time achieve they acquire the status of a general principle of international law, which means it's binding upon nations even if they don't have a treaty. So that's the way international law develops, and I've often argued that international law is a better model for what we think of as libertarian law than state law because what's called municipal law, confusingly. Municipal law means the law of a given country like the UK or yeah. Germany or the US um, because those laws are so dominated now by legislation and statutes which have nothing to do with justice. Uh, they've basically overridden and suffocated the private law that's the core of it from the common law and the Roman law. But in international law, it's still – because there's no really legislation except for a couple of things by the United Nations, it's largely governed by consent and custom and practicality. Well, it's more like a peace agreement, isn't it? It's, it's more like, like a peace agreement. Peace. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, it's more I mean, like that. I remember having a debate with an objectivist once <clears throat> who even made the point to me, which I had to agree with once I thought about it enough was by saying that on an international scale we already have anarchism because yes we don't have one ruling oh yes the rule and they and all of these nations they might not respect property rights and self-ownership on with regards to their individual citizenry but to each other as entities they have this peace Correct. agreement where they agree not to initiate and what have you so it's so it's almost like i mean to honest, and again it's a little bit like my disagreement well, well hold on i'm surprised an objectivist made that argument because that undercuts their belief in in the state because the i've gotten objectivists to admit this before i said no the end result of and i by the way at another pork fest about five years ago i gave a talk and i did well i actually debated an objectivist william thomas with david kelly moderating and i i made that point like you guys believe there needs to be uniformity of laws within a certain jurisdiction but that would apply globally right there's no reason to have 200 different states that are in anarchy with respect to each other and these guys will admit if they're honest and they have before they admit that yes ideally we do want a one world government but right now the most of the governments of the world are so status that that would that would be worse I was like, yeah, but it's never going to – even if they were all roughly quasi-libertarian like they are now, they, we had one, one – it would still be a bad idea to have one world government because then you have no exit. You have no escape. You have monopolization. Go crazy. So most objectives would say they're leery of having a one, one world government, which means they're in favor of anarchy. So their objection to anarchy within a country falls apart because it's obviously possible, and they, they even favor it, and actually – Galt's Galt and Atlas Shrugged was basically anarchist, if you think about it. So they're confused. Yeah, I, I must admit, issue. I do think objectivists do self-defeat themselves a lot with our arguments. Because I mean, because to be honest, when he brought it up, I felt like he was helping my argument more than yes. he was himself by making that point. Although it was a point that he made that because when he first said, Oh, we already live in an anarchist society globally. And I was like, What are you on about? And then when he kind of explained what he was talking yeah. about, I was like, Oh, okay, yeah, that's a valid point. But that kind <laughs> of point. further supports the But it idea works. It's an anarchy that kind of works. Treaty, that, yeah, because almost almost what you want to say is you almost want to take that exact same principle but apply it to us all recognizing us as individuals individuals right. rather than in recognizing these states and nations as some Correct. kind of 
entity. Yeah. So, I mean, even, even Mises, some people say Mises was almost an anarchist. Well, he was almost, but some people say he was because he didn't oppose that decentralization devolution process uh, all the way down to the individual, except he thought that it could only go so far as there was a practical, I think he called it a practical administrative unit, but he didn't know theoretically where that was. Now, we anarchists think it's the practical administrative unit is the family or the person himself, right? He thought it might be a small town or a village, which would be good enough for me. I would go, I would go for that world any day. Um, but yeah, the, uh, oh, another good point. Not only is there anarchy among nations in the world today, and there always has been, uh, but there's a famous, a classic article in the first or early issue of the Journal of Libertarian Studies by Alfred Kuzan called, Do We Ever Get, Do We Ever Really Get Out of Anarchy? Now, he's actually not a libertarian, but it's a provocative article, and he argues that in a sense there's anarchy even today, like even within countries like in the United States or in, in the UK or in, 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 in Mexico, whatever. There's anarchy because no one person in the government or in the state itself has the ability to forcefully – coerce all the people that obey his orders so like you know joe biden in the u.s right now is not a dictator because he's not pointing a gun at anyone he's not able to people voluntarily obey his orders and within the state there's this anarchy of people going by a certain set of rules so what kuzan points out is that it's just the wrong anarchy we libertarians are in favor of a different kind of anarchy but you can't object to our kind of anarchy on the grounds that anarchy is impossible because there is no overlord up in the sky forcing all these agents of the United States government to obey this constitutional set of rules. They do it each of their own volition. Yeah, yeah, I understand what you're saying. I mean, I suppose, again, I mean, and just to circle back to where we started and what and why I always like to identify <laughs> as a voluntarist, because I think when I when I first came into this whole idea of the non-aggression principle and stuff and was, OK, what, what does that make me then? And I thought, well, libertarian, but then I didn't like the minarchists. I didn't like that title and the fact that it didn't see it have distinguished me enough. Mm -hmm. Then I was like, well, anarchist or anarcho-capitalist, but I didn't really like the capitalist part yep. of the anarcho-capitalist. I agree with and you. Then I went with the anarchist side, but then again, even the anarchists, I'm thinking that's not specific enough because... Yep. Like I say, not only do you have people like David Freeman who can conceptualize a coercive society that's just decentralized, and that's enough to call it anarchist, but then obviously you've got the, the anarcho communists who, yeah you know obviously have their idea of what anarchism is and and to a lot of people anarchy just means chaos yeah. you know so i just thought yeah. uh, that's why i kind of hope although i do accept why voluntarism can also be problematic and i think whatever word we use we always have to add a add in an explanation as to what we're talking about I, you know, like i think i think you have basically the right approach which is my approach which is you believe in anarchy uh but a certain type of anarchy where property rights are respected you understand there would be wide diversity um, uh, among communities and within within any community, um, and we can't, from our armchairs, spin out every possible rule because there's continuums, there's gray issues, um, but there would be a core of things that are non-negotiables, right? Um, contract has to be one of them, right? For this treaty idea to exist, there has to be universal, basically universal respect for certain principles, right? And which how far that goes is a matter of theoretical or scholarly debate, but I tend to think that legal scholarship and po political theory, especially those informed by libertarianism or libertarians who are informed of these things, right, um, can make the most contributions to that. So we can identify 
the core principles and go out a little further. But when we sense that we're going too far in trying to map out the details of a given society, we, we have to stop there and say, look, beyond this point, it's up to society to develop its own applications and customs. Exactly. Yeah, because all we're really doing at the real core of it is saying, look, this is when violence can be used justifiably, because Correct. everything else is, you know, like, like, like even the liberal conservative thing. I mean, if we take away the, the common uh, meanings to those two two titles, like I say, I, I would identify myself as a very liberal person in the sense of I'm quite liberal. I like a very live and let live attitude. I don't I don't judge other people's lifestyles harshly and all the rest of it. But I could just as easily be a conservative and still be a voluntarist because I could have my more conservative values <coughs> and I could even try to enforce them in a non-violent way where I support businesses that you know encourage you know that support the way of life I want to encourage. I might I, I personally would you know have those values and I would only be friends with other people and you know and, and all of those sort of things but I don't get to use force on the people that step outside my ideals. And again the same with the liberal who you know what thinks that society be, should be a certain way. You know we all have we all want to influence society. We all want you know we don't all exist in a vacuum but we all that's why we need that that's why we again that's another reason why this this line where our rights end or, or begin or you know how they're defined is so important because we do have to interact with each other and that's where the utilitarian side of it comes in of okay well the only way this world can function is if we've got a coherent moral system but the only coherent moral system that we can have or perhaps moral is the wrong word <clears throat> understanding and defining rights and freedom is one based on self-ownership like we say we can't say that morality definitely exists as a fact but we can say that if there's such a thing as rights then the only internally yeah. consistent conceptualization of it is the one based on self-ownership yeah and i have to say i mean I, I, although i'm working on something similar with my constant writing and speaking in this my my, my attempt to draft a constitution which would be kind of like your statement of principles um or the lines in the sand part um i i'm not sure anymore that all, any of this is the way to achieve liberty. Um, I, I don't mind people doing it. Obviously, I do it. Um, I, I, I tend to think in my, I don't know if it's cynical or just realistic, but I tend to think that liberty, if it's ever going to be achieved, like in a substantial sense, the kind of liberty that we, we envision and want, um, it's not going to be because people like you and I are running around with our little projects, right? Because you, there's just a, there's a natural um there's a natural tendency of most people to focus on their own hobbies and interests and they're just not going to be interested in political theory or even wondering if what they believe in terms of of laws is perfectly consistent and all this kind of stuff i just don't i mean basically what we're doing is we're handing out pamphlets libertarian pamphlets to our uncles at thanksgiving dinners right <laughs> and that's just not going to ever achieve liberty because you need a big percentage of society for that to happen, and it's always going to be a small percentage of people that are have this as a, as an interest. So I, but I do think that liberty personally will be achieved. I'm all, I, I want to say I'm Marxian, but I almost think there's phases of human development. I still think we're in the primitive stage of society, even though we have high technology, uh, which deludes us into thinking that we're advanced. I think we're very primitive still, um, and I think that with wealth. And with the gradual advancement of the human race, um, with technology, I do think that liberty will be achieved, but in a way that's better because 
it will be a lasting liberty because once we get there, it'll be organic and it'll be part of the human race. Um, so I'm hopeful for liberty, and I think things like Bitcoin will help too, to be honest. Bitcoin and technology and prosperity and these this sort of post-abundant society, which we hopefully may be heading towards, will just make the state wither away. And liberty will be natural to people, just like most people take it for granted now that central planning of the Soviet Union and that kind of model is unworkable. They don't, they've never read economics. They don't understand it. They were commies in the 1960s. Now those people are gone because they're relegated to the dustbin of history because there was a teaching moment, right? Um, when the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, we didn't learn all of our lessons, but there was a big teaching moment. There's a widespread appreciation for you have to have capitalism, even though if you have to blunt its harsh edges and all that kind of crap. Um, and I think that over time, as we have a more diverse world, a more plural world, a world of increasing international commerce and trade and travel, um, an interlinked world financially and globally, um, and increasing wealth and technology and thus power of every individual, the state will just gradually wither away. People, you know, you don't need the state to give you health care because you have a robot in your basement. You know, you don't need the state to protect you because people are so wealthy, there's very little crime. Who's going to steal when charity is plentiful and you can print your food at the local you know, co-op or whatever? Uh, that's kind of my utopian dream for society. So I view what we do and what you're interested in as more of what Albert J. Not called the remnant. Like we're keeping the flame of liberty alive uh, for when people need to turn to it to understand in detail this liberty framework that's emerging around us, and you know to push it along, to nudge it, to shape it as we can. Um, Perhaps to spread it to other parts of society where it's not already burning. You know, like, yes, yes. It, because one of the things I do try to do with my projects a little bit, one again, why I focus on volunteerism rather than like anarcho-capitalism, and that is, I really try to go neutral. I'm like I like I don't want to alienate the left or alienate the right. I want to show that this is something that really isn't it. Like like when I talk about like the liberal conservative thing, like I think like volunteerism is something that could be on top of other things. So you could be a conservative, but you could be a voluntarist conservative, yeah. Yeah. Or a liberal conservative rather than yeah. a statist conservative or a statist yeah. liberal, you know? Um, and it's about trying to get to that place. And I know I, to be honest, I share your cynicism, to be honest, because most of the time I feel like we're walking up a mountain of sand that's just falling down faster than we're walking up it you yeah. know um so it gets a bit kind of thankless but I do feel like I kind of I suppose I believe in my heart that almost not everybody because there are some people that are intentionally not that way but I think yes a lot of people maybe most people are voluntarist at heart if they oh, really I agree. thought about it and i totally agree you know whether they're liberal whether they're conservative yes. those things you know because i do speak to people on the left and the right who have you know these opinions and when i talk to them on a voluntarist level i usually find them agreeing with me when you yeah. get when you break it down because most people yeah. you know self-ownership it's all pretty basic stuff we just yeah. lose sight of it so i think one of the things that we're doing and it may be in the vein of again just keeping that flame alive but uh, with perhaps the hope of doing a little more <laughs> um is 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 really to try to show that because one thing i do get concerned about a little bit is a recent phenomena is where the left have been a little bit more authoritarian of late with regards to their supporting of certain things mm -hmm. the, there's a lot of people on the right that are trying to present the right wing as as some kind of analogous to freedom kind of thing and i'm like no the right are just as bad and just as dangerous as the left when it comes to 
you know, um, you know, using the, the the violence of the state. And I really want to kind of appeal to the freedom lovers everywhere, the people that know yeah. in their heart, and and that's wider audience than than it, than than it would be if we were just going to say free market capitalists or yeah. libertarians or you know, like I could I could go to a hippie festival and find plenty of people yeah. that yeah. would be in complete support of what I'm talking about because they also agree with that same freedom. They might come at it from a different, you know, so it's a little bit like yeah. how um, libertarians often talk about how they're more of like the left wing when it comes to things like drug laws and maybe um, national wars, but then they're more aligned with the right when it comes to economic freedoms, although they're not fully aligned with either because they're obviously, you know, fully in support of freedom, whereas both sides aren't. But that the, the there's commonalities to be found with both. And even the areas where they support violence, it's usually some sort of justification yeah. like where we mentioned before, where they're like, well, because the system's tainted in this way, we might as well have this coercion over yeah. here. And, yeah. and our solution is, well, let's yeah. get rid of yeah. all the coercion exactly. and we don't have that problem where everything's attached to another bit of coercion. Yeah, it's like the, it, it, what, what people say, well, you, you need patents because the drug companies need to recoup their cost. I say, well, the drug costs are so high because the development of a drug is so high because of the FDA, the federal, you know, the regulatory process. So both are caused by the government. So the government imposes a regulatory requirement that imposes costs on companies, and then the government gives them a monopoly called a patent to help them make up for it. Why don't we just get rid of both? You know, and the same uh, with licenses and 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 to be honest, drug laws play into that as well. When you've got things like cannabis prohibition that prevents, yeah, of course, something that competes. Yeah, with yeah, people in prison because of the drug laws. Uh, why don't we get and the prisons uh, cause people to be unemployed and recidivists and all this and uh, have uh, children that don't have fathers and. I get rid well, of drug and, laws. and also again with the pharmaceutical, I mean a good example I often point to is over here in England. We have a there's a drug company called GW Pharmaceuticals who grow cannabis for medical use. <clears throat> that's like you know, so like an approved cannabis medicine. Yet any citizen that wants to grow cannabis for medical use goes to prison. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like and and because they have that exclusive license, they are able to charge massively extortionate prices because and. There's no choice involved because and, and then and then the government says, oh, we need to have price controls. It's like, but you're causing you're causing this problem in the first place. Um, exactly. I mean, there was a there was a there was a, um, a cannabis club in Spain or or a group that's connected to them called Bud Buddies that just to prove a point produced the exact same because it's like an under the tongue spray that this mm -hmm. uh, GW final called Satavex. Um, they produced uh, a, a cannabis tincture that was basically identical, had the same cannabinoid profile, everything. They produced it for, I think it was £10. They said our total cost was £10. And they're not even a big organisation that can really reduce the costs with the bulk production and everything like a large you know, so it goes to, and this is the same bottle that gw pharmaceuticals are selling to the nhs for like a few hundred pounds you know what i mean but the only reason they're allowed to do that is because they can't be undercut because they've got this exclusive license so they can charge the earth for it because no one else is legally at least allowed to yeah. compete with them well i would encourage you to you should check out live and let live .org. i think you might have a lot in common with them maybe you guys could ally or yeah i will do i'll reach out to them oh i think that's another thing i think we need to do um all people that are in this kind of line of of, of i think we all need to try to network and, and ally best we can and and help each other and and also to honest these conversations because it helps you know like my the nation's insanity project has evolved as an idea it started off with the one 
you know, peace agreement, then it changed, became a three part peace agreement. And it's through conversations with people like yourself and also with people that, have not, you know, like people that know about it and people that don't, that helps, you know, refine our understanding of the principles. And I think it helps us illuminate our path to a free society if we're ever yeah. going to get there. Let so I really, you, uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Let me I'm give not, you one funny, before yeah. we go, let me tell you okay. one funny thing. Um, I've been involved in maybe a dozen, maybe more of these similar types of movements, projects over the years. Uh, and I mentioned some of those in my the talk, in my episode 345 of my podcast. Um, well, but, before, um, sorry to interrupt. Can you give me a link to that? And I'll put a link in the description to that. Yeah, episode. I'll send you a link. Um, but it's... Uh, 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 like one one project is Liberland, of course. Another one was called uh, 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 General Governance, which was an idea to ally with the Indian tribes in the U.S. to try to extend their kind of exemption from taxes to other I – mean, all these kind of crazy ideas, right? Floating nation ideas. Uh, but one was called uh, Creative Common Law, and I think I joined that as an advisor like three years ago. And this guy was on Tom Woods' show, and like he was, he was in favor of kind of coming up with a libertarian – create a common law guidelines. So it's kind of like our ideas and all this, right? So I was an advisor. So about six months ago, three months ago, I was I, I went to their website because I was updating my resume. I wanted to make sure I was listed right or something like that. And I couldn't find my name. And I looked at the the text. It, it was Creative Common Law 2.0. And it was it used to be an anarcho-capitalist type of common law system. Now it's anarcho-syndicalist. The guy just changed his mind. <laughs> so I'm like, well, great. <laughs> great. Thanks for taking me off the uh, the list of advisors. I do not want to be a socialist. But the guy told me, oh, yeah, I disagree with capitalism now. So a lot of these guys are like what I call fair uh, uh, way station libertarians are just passing through. When, when I meet someone who's all fired up about libertarianism and they've just – they read the Austrian and the libertarian stuff like six months ago, I'm always like, okay, come back to me in two years. Let's see if you're still – if you're still with us, because I've seen too many people move on to the next thing, usually because they're impatient, right? They, they think we're going to achieve liberty in six months from their project, and when they don't, they get frustrated, and they just give up on libertarian principles, and they become postmodernist. I mean sort of post-libertarian, or they become – I call them thugocrats because they believe in might makes right now, and you got you got to break some eggs to make an omelet, and uh, anyway. Sorry, Which is totally contrary. Little... No, no, I understand that. I mean, I mean, funnily enough, from my point of view – um like you know like like that's why anarcho-capitalism didn't work for me because like some people had definitions that contradicted with how i wanted to identify and i suppose from my point of view it just again it comes back to that simple idea of self-ownership and understanding that everyone has right over themselves and building it from there and whether people call themselves anarcho-capitalists or they want to call themselves libertarians or voluntarists or liberals or whatever they want to call themselves the devil's in the details. So I always ask them, even if they call themselves an anarcho-capitalist, I'm like, well, are you the David Friedman type of anarcho-capitalist exactly. that's going to allow slavery and drug laws? Because I don't want to help you out in that venture. Or are you going to be an anarcho-capitalist who's truly a voluntarist? In which case, you don't even need to be an anarcho-capitalist. You could be a, you can call yourself a communist as long as you're one that actually does respect self-ownership and wants to have truly non-coercive communes. I, I fully support your efforts to pursue yeah. that way of life. You know, it's about, and again, that's why I, I focus on that economic neutrality with regards to trying to present this to everybody. Because yeah. the only requirement we can, we're all different and we're all going to be different. And that's how it should be. The only, like you say, the line in the sand that we need to draw is over our rights as individuals. Yeah. 
really appreciate you taking the time. Um, perhaps we'll speak again sometime. I certainly enjoyed this conversation, so uh, maybe that will happen one time again in the future. Really, really, really do appreciate it. I thought it was a really good conversation. Went through a lot of stuff, so um, thanks again. Happy to do it. Thanks a lot. Have a good one.